Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up on today's show, we're going to talk Duluth Trading Company, actually Duluth Holdings releasing their earnings. We're going to have a deep dive on them to lead off the show. We'll also talk about Sears in the news a lot for a couple of different reasons over the last few days. And we'll wrap up the show with, of course, a looking ahead segment and also talking about the home goods retailer at home. A reminder to like us, rate us wherever you do listen to us. Also check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Retail Podcast. As we mentioned, let's lead off with a big deep dive into Duluth Holdings. This is a company we haven't talked about for nearly a year. They announced their latest quarterly earnings on Thursday, April 4th, and the call was for them a rare miss on earnings per share coming in at around 64 cents on an adjusted basis versus analyst estimates of 75 cents. Perhaps the most frustrating part of their calls for us is that they don't release comp store sales yet. We've been waiting to see that for many of their new openings dating back to 2016 and 2017, and a number of their stores are new enough, meaning the last couple of years opened up to not have meaningful comps necessarily, but there is a decent amount of their store fleet that's been open since 2016, so it'd be good to see where those numbers and where their brick-and-mortar execution is at. We get an idea from this call that it's not necessarily in tip-top shape, but it was a fantastically transparent call, and it allowed us to go deep inside a lot of the initiatives there at Duluth Trading Company. Duluth is certainly a retailer that we have covered in the past, but as Trent talked about, it has been a while. They were once known for their popular television ads and way of marketing to what they would like to have as new customers. During the call, they began by noting their new store base and some new stores during their fourth quarter, which ended, by the way, this quarter ended February 3rd. Overall, they opened 15 new stores or approximately one-third of their current 46 store base in fiscal year 2017. These stores averaged just over 16,000 square feet per location. Another thing they mentioned early and often was the fact that they made their 36th consecutive quarter of increased net sales year over year. Their net sales increased around 15% to $250.5 million in 2018's fourth quarter. The sales increase was spurred on by a couple things, uh, the combination being new store openings and a slight increase in existing e-commerce sales. One-two punch there for Duluth. Breaking this down, though, however, you can see that e-commerce sales increased sort of a modest 5.4%, and brick-and-mortar net sales were up around 38.9%, due mostly to those new store openings. So more stores equal more sales, more net sales for the company. In fact, The official press release said explicitly that the increase in net sales was, and I quote, attributable to the opening of 15 new retail stores, leading us to believe that same-store sales on locations open for at least one year were flat to even maybe negative, depending on how you look at those numbers. Director e-commerce sales, meanwhile, were up 7% year-over-year in the first eight weeks of the quarter, absolutely plummeting to negative 6% year-over-year in the final month or so. CEO Stephanie Pugliese said that they faced challenges in the fourth quarter, hinting at the earnings miss. She wasn't explicit about the challenges immediately, but we can see some cracks beginning to form on the margin front. And we look there at the gross margin, it decreased 90 basis points, even as net income grew. And we should mention that 
We've been impressed in the past at the fact that they've been a growing retailer and how they've been able to maintain profitability during a very robust growth phase. And Duluth has managed to do that fairly regularly in the past five years. Looking at Wayfair as a counterexample, still struggling to get profitability even as the company expands rather aggressively online. And now, as we noted a couple weeks ago, via brick and mortar extension. But margin shrinkage for Duluth was blamed primarily on the decline in shipping revenues. If you look a little deeper there, you can see that discounted or free shipping offers were really eating away at margin. But this is something you have to factor in in the online space. This is something that is sort of a double negative, if you will, for a particular company such as Duluth because they don't have the distribution, which we'll talk about here in a second. That is as robust as, say, a Kohl's. But yet they have to compete basically on the same free shipping offers or at least offer free shipping if you hit a certain dollar amount. So all of that expedited shipping and then also returning some orders that were online really contributed to those freight cost increases. Freight costs should continue to increase as the chain continues to build out their brick and mortar presence nationwide and they expect around 15 more news stores by the way in 2019 another substantial increase all this comes at a time when they expanded and upgraded their distribution center in wisconsin to attempt to find more efficiencies to help build that distribution network out ultimately though they'll likely need to make a decision soon on perhaps opening another distribution center or perhaps retrofitting e-commerce fulfillment centers to serve retail or else they'll continue to eat distribution costs, especially as the price of fuel, by the way, continues to generally increase. And this isn't often talked about, Trent, but now in a lot of parts of the United States, you're seeing the summer mixture added in to a lot of fuel stations. That summer mixture is between 5 and 10% more. That's why you're seeing fuel prices here on the West Coast, where I'm recording, going up just a little bit week over week over week. And that's not certainly going to be beneficial to these companies that we cover on the podcast. Now, one thing we were happy to see is marketing costs decreasing as a percentage of revenue. In the past, we've talked about how massive their advertising costs are compared to other, even other growing retailers. Many mature clothing retailers will have marketing spend in the 5 to 8% neighborhood as a percentage of net sales, sometimes a little bit less than that even. Duluth was at 16.4%. This time last year, meaning they're spending a lot more money on advertising as a percentage of net sales than a lot of their competitors. But this year's fourth quarter, Duluth came in at 14.4%, still high, but not as high as they have been. And that reduction due to a number of factors. First, their advertising spend didn't necessarily decrease by all that much in real dollars. In fact, likely went up slightly when you calculate the numbers, do the back of the napkin math, but as a percentage of sales, it declined thanks to an increase in sales this year. Other impacts on marketing expenses included a decrease in catalog spend, a shift of catalog delivery dates as well out of that fourth quarter into this year's first quarter, and also leveraging their brick-and-mortar stores as a small part of their marketing picture, but mainly that spend going down as a percentage of sales due to their increasing sales. Now, some analysts have noted that this spend might come back down to earth as the company matures, but it does cause a little bit of concern going forward that they may not be able to maintain sales without a high level of ad spend and without increasing their ad spend, especially as they build out to new markets. Now, another note regarding margins, uh, selling general and administrative expenses increased slightly, mostly due to selling expenses 
increasing to 16% of net sales from 14.1%. Again, whenever you open more brick-and-mortar locations, you need sales staff in those locations. So it's costing a little bit more to staff those locations. Also, they mentioned bolstering their call center staffing as well because their e-commerce sales are going up. And they're expanding at a time where the labor market and wages are both insanely competitive. So they have to be competitive in order to attract those employees in. That means high wages. That means it's going to eat into margins. Now, the call and the results ultimately could be divided into two categories, positive and negative. We've talked about some of the positive and negative results information, but as far as the call is concerned, we wanted to kind of break down some of the larger initiatives Duluth Trading Company has going on. So let's talk the positive first. I'll take the positive. Leighton will take the negative because he's just a, a negative person by nature. Now, direct growth rates for the company. And when I mean direct growth rates, that usually means e-commerce when it comes to Duluth Trading Company. But direct growth rates were more than double in brick and mortar markets for the company versus growth rates in markets without physical locations. So basically, anytime they open up a location, they grow in terms of the direct-to-consumer approach, in terms of that e-commerce approach in that market, even if that store isn't necessarily bolstering brick-and-mortar sales. And they credit their increased buy online pickup and store initiatives in part for this. They tested out seven different stores during this last quarter. They said it went very well. They're hoping to add all of the stores into the buy online pickup and store pipeline by the end of this quarter, but it also underscores the importance of physical location in this omni-channel approach. We've talked about it in the past, in the long ago past, when it comes to Duluth Trading Company. They kind of turned things around and went from being a primarily e-commerce retailer to being a retailer that wants to have more balance. And we always find it funny when an online-only retailer refers to an omni-channel approach. Well, the reality of it is you have to have that physical presence in order to truly build out across all channels. And Duluth has really taken that to heart here. That's one of the reasons why they are keeping their store growth program in place, still eyeing about 15 new store openings coming up for next year, as Leighton talked about. They also underwent a large infrastructure overhaul, not only in this last quarter, but throughout the course of that last year, including the distribution center, Leighton mentioned earlier in Wisconsin. Additionally, they introed a new order management system, a new inventory planning system, and updated the e-commerce platform. Now, ideally, these are things that will help to streamline those margins in the future, and they'll help to compensate for the increased brick-and-mortar spend. For now, though, there may be some issues with the full implementation. We'll talk about that with the negatives here in a bit, but the company does expect to see reasonable improvement from the new processes and systems by the third quarter of this year. That's when they feel like the company is really going to turn things around with a number of initiatives they have. The build-out of their e-commerce platform also assisted them in being able to handle higher traffic capacity during Black Friday in particular. In fact, their traffic for the quarter as a whole increased 11% year over year, and that's with slightly declining traffic in January. And they credited that new platform when they got a glut of new visitors in late November and early December, that new platform able to easily handle it, what wasn't their inventory system. And again, we'll talk about that on the negative side. One other positive for them, actually a couple more positives for them. Women's apparel has significant momentum for them, including plus size categories. And in fact, especially with retail stores, what they've seen is growth in women's apparel actually outpacing growth in men's apparel, which is thought to be Duluth's bread and butter, even as 
Men's Apparel dominates their stores in terms of square footage. As a result, they plan on doubling down a bit on some of their women's product lines, and they also plan on releasing an entirely new clothing line for women coming up later this year. They've refused to get into specifics during that analyst Q&A on the earnings call, but some of this momentum in women's apparel has caused other issues. For example, they ran out of stock during the fourth quarter of some key plus-size items. But finally, in terms of the positive, they've gotten meaningful data from a larger store base. Anytime you grow out your store base, they're getting a larger sample size for their data. They're getting a better idea of what their key customer wants. And this has resulted in some planned key important initiatives for later this year. One data point in particular they've picked up on is that for them, new product rollouts are received better in brick and mortar than online. When they roll out a new product online, it does well, but when they roll it out in brick and mortar, it makes a meaningful top line impact on their sales. And in particular, they've seen this manifest itself with the Alaskan hard gear men's line and most of all, their entire women's line of clothing. So as a result, what they've done is they've planned a series of brand new products for rollout in quarters two through four. And they also plan to hit what they call seasonal new, harder with in-store displays, trying to capture that growth within the in-store new product rollouts. And seasonal new, I should mention that term for Duluth, means products that recur on a yearly basis, but only during certain months out of the year. They gave the example on the call of a flannel shirt maybe coming out in September, October, November, that type of thing. They noted that women seem to respond even more to new product rollouts than men. And moreover, they noticed that the women that are responding to these new product rollouts do so well in advance of the season that the product was intended for. So, for example, that flannel shirt might be intended for fall. They found that women buying that flannel shirt a little bit earlier than men are buying it. Men are buying it a lot closer to the time they plan on wearing that. So they're attempting to leverage their new inventory management systems to hit women's seasonal new earlier than men's seasonal new. They feel like this will allow them to stagger the new product rollouts a little bit. It'll also help to ease up the pressure on their distribution centers, especially that one in Wisconsin. But this is an interesting approach, certainly. And so they talked about having kind of a different approach for brick and mortar versus e-commerce because of this phenomenon they're noticing. But they feel like because of this data that they've pulled in, quarters three and four in particular of this year are going to be really meaningful quarters for the company because they have all these new products geared up for launch and they feel like new products are really what helps to boost that top line revenue inside stores. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're one of the 25 people listening to this podcast, you can now turn the volume back up because it's time to talk a little bit of negativity. Negativity around sales, put bluntly, where management wanted them to be a little bit higher in the fourth quarter. This is especially bad for this most recent quarter because the largest chunk of the company's earnings come in the fourth quarter. They may have taken a bit of a hit there because people were ending up shopping a little bit too early during this last holiday season. We saw this with a number of retailers as Black Friday sales came in really solid, but then towards the end of December sort of dropped off. So early December sales were positive for them, but you saw a significant drop off in terms of overall revenue. Pugliese blamed a slowdown in customer response, lower traffic, and an overall slowdown in customer spending on a macro level, which, interestingly enough, it did not impact all retailers we've covered here on the podcast. Just apparently 
the ones who want to use it as an excuse. And I think we've seen a number of retailers do that over time. But the expansion of their store network here may be exposing issues with their overall supply chain. They noted late deliveries of product, inventory not aligned to sales timing, and suboptimal product distribution throughout the country. Some of these challenges came from system implementation, which some of those initiatives we discussed were in the positive section as well. However, many come from delayed shipments at ports, and this is interesting because this is not often what we see here, except when maybe port workers go on strike or such disruption happens throughout the country. But this, in turn, caused a backup throughout their distribution center network, and the one in Wisconsin is the only one currently serving retail stores. As a result, the company got caught between attempting to get merchandise out on time to web customers and their retail stores, forcing them to incur additional shipping expenses to attempt to meet those sales deadlines as a final impact. Merchandise intended for promotional activity and seasonal initiatives got to stores late, which meant the inventory lingered on shelves long enough that eventually had to be clearanced out, which further hurt those margins we talked about at the beginning of the story. Finally, traffic is down for both stores and web currently. Specifically, they said that the first quarter has been slow for them thus far, and sluggishness actually began in the late parts of the fourth quarter of 2018, and that has continued. In particular, men's apparel lines haven't really regained the flow that management would like to see. Women's has rebounded somewhat thanks to the initiatives that Trent talked about. Worse, they don't really have any initiatives that would spur on quick sales turnaround in the next few months, mostly planned for the third and fourth quarter of this fiscal year. And the company itself says we may not see a traffic turnaround until the third quarter, then when they roll some of those initiatives out. Shares of Duluth dropped sharply as shareholders apparently weren't in the mood to wait until the late 2019 period for a turnaround from $23.52 a share prior to the call to $18.25 on April 5th. Shares are a little bit lower even than that right now, around $17 a share. The price-to-earnings ratio, by the way, has lowered a bit, down to around 25.5, a market cap of around $560 million for the company. With that, we move on to another story in a legacy retailer in Sears, who has just emerged after Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Another surprising story, but this time more for the positive. Openings haven't really been big news under the Sears hometown banner as of late, but three openings announced this week come under the new main Sears Holdings company. The stores will be similar in size to Sears hometown, but will focus on a different set of goods and will be company-owned rather than in the franchise model. Speaking of Sears hometown trend, we got a bit of surprise regarding the sub-brand earlier this week, but we'll discuss that a little later. But first, the openings. Yeah, and there are a couple of different reasons, as you mentioned, why Sears is in the news this week. But let's talk about these openings because they are coming under that general Sears Holdings Company, or as they are known now, coming out of the bankruptcy, Transform Holdco, which is, of course, affiliated with ESL Investments or Eddie Lampert. The name is thought to be temporary, at least, until they come up with something more compelling, which I hope they do quickly because I'm going to get tired of talking about Transform Holdco, whatever that is, on the podcast here. But the three stores that they're opening, they'll be under a distinct banner with a bit of a different product assortment. 
than any Sears stores in the past. So the banner's name is Sears Home and Life. First time they've used that banner. And that honestly gives Sears a bit of a, a chance to reinvent their image and also their product mix. This is something, this is an initiative basically that they can tweak from the ground up rather than having to make changes on the fly with some of their larger Sears and Kmart stores. And these Sears Home and Life stores will max out at 15,000 square feet. They'll all be at least 10,000 square feet. Speaking generally, those are bigger than the hometown stores, which usually you see around six to 9,000 square feet there. But these particular Sears Home and Life stores will include some of the Sears hometown staples. So you'll see appliances and power tools there, but they'll also include mattresses, home goods, and garden products. No clothes in this case, anywhere in the store. And one note via Lauren Thomas of CNBC claims that they will extend the Die Hard brand outside of automotive to their lawn and garden offerings. So expect to see some more private label products using that Die Hard brand regarding their other lawn and garden offerings. So again, very much like a Sears hometown store, but building out some of the smaller ticket items just a little bit. This entire initiative is a follow-through on really Eddie Lampert's vision to transition to smaller store footprints, and we've heard this in the past, but honestly figured it was just kind of lip service as they maintained a strategy of closing stores and selling off all, not just part, of the real estate they owned. We didn't see a number of circumstances where a Sears store downsized and basically sold off the rest of the store or subletted the rest of the store. Instead, we just saw blanket closures. But this particular Sears, the Sears Home and Life, is kind of a return to a model closer to many Sears locations pre-mall. If you think back to before the 80s when you saw a lot of Sears locations kind of build out in the larger malls there, you had some smaller locations, maybe not as small as 15,000 square feet, but certainly smaller than their average location of about 155,000 square feet. A lot of them had the outlying tire and auto centers as well. The current Sears, that 155,000 square feet, is kind of a similar iteration to the old Montgomery Ward stores, where you had a section for the appliances, the electronics, that type of thing. And in fact, in a number of malls throughout the country, if you recall, and you're a retail enthusiast dating back to the 90s, Sears moved into some old Montgomery Ward locations after the latter went out of business, and their continued clothing push was only accelerated by this. They rolled out a number of ad campaigns, really wanted to go all in on clothes in stores, and has, has been relentlessly pointed out clothing has been a non-starter as a category for Sears over the last few years and most of their strength came from goods similar to those sold at the hometown stores most of their strength came from things like riding lawnmowers things like appliances and large kitchen goods now this gives Sears a chance to pick and choose from the categories that we're seeing success or at the very least I guess you could say less failure than others at their current stores without having to blow apart an existing location. According to the company press release, they did mention there will be design experts on hand to determine the aesthetic fit of appliances within a kitchen. There's also a search bar, and by that I don't mean a search bar like what you have on your browser, but an actual bar-like mechanism in the store, just like a breakfast bar or a drink bar, allowing customers to shop online with staff assistance. Also have buy online, pick up in store for Sears.com purchases and Sears Home Services there as well. So a number of different ways they can leverage the space. 
And this is what kind of differentiates them from that hometown model because a lot of that hometown model had trouble tying into the regular Sears. Part of it was because they are two separate companies, technically, and we'll talk about that in a second. Of interest, at least to me, are the locations that Sears has selected for these three stores. In Anchorage, Alaska, Overland Park, Kansas, and Lafayette, Louisiana, honestly, they couldn't have picked three more different markets. Overland Park, for those that don't know, that's an affluent suburb of Kansas City. Anchorage is just a challenge from a distribution standpoint. In fact, mattresses won't be available at that location in part because of distribution issues. And Lafayette is a southern market with potentially more money to spend than other southern markets. In fact, when you look up kind of the demographics, only 16.3% of the population in Lafayette below the poverty line versus around 25% of the population being below the poverty line in similarly sized cities nearby. And so in this regard, because you're spreading out these markets and you're putting them in vastly different places, it's clear that these are test markets rather than the tip of some larger expansion iceberg that's underway. Uh, Peter Boutros, who's their chief brand officer, declined to say if other stores were in the works. But the reason I mentioned that these are test markets is because you look at the size of these cities, a lot bigger than the cities that hold those Sears hometown stores. Sears hometown stores you think of being in smaller to mid-sized markets, markets of anywhere between 3,000 people to 50,000 people. And in this case, you've got markets that are generally speaking a lot larger with these smaller square foot stores. The Overland Park location is also of note simply because of its spot in a high-end shopping district. This has been a criticism of ours in regards to Kmart in the past. In particular, many stores were left behind in less than stellar shopping districts. Now, as we mentioned, these will not be connected to the hometown stores, at least not yet. We thought it was going to be odd that Sears would risk infringing on this banner when ESL still owns a huge amount of hometown and outlet stock. But then news broke. Monday of this week, Eddie Lampert has apparently made a play to bring the hometown and outlet stores back into the larger Sears fold after splitting them off years ago. ESL, by the way, is their largest stakeholder, shareholder, I should say, and stakeholder, if you want to look at it like that. Of Sears hometown and outlet stores, around 58% of the outstanding stock belongs to ESL, according to the Chicago Tribune. The split initially happened way back in 2012, which seems like a long time ago, just seven years. And since then, we've seen a touch more success for the spun-off brand rather than the standard Sears holding. So we've spoken actually to a few franchisees who own the hometown stores, and they've reported to us double-digit sales increases over the past few years, although this ran dry in the most recent quarter when sales struggled as a result of the Sears bankruptcy and all that negative press out there, and by the way, their distribution network shortcomings because of the issues there that were going to disrupt their business model and therefore those franchisees. The announcement of the offer came from Sears Hometown and the outlet stores itself, stating that they received an offer to buy the remaining outstanding shares not owned by ESL, so around 42% or so, if you do that quick math. They noted that they rejected the offer, but that the offer did touch off negotiations between Transform Hold Co., again, such a sexy name there, and Sears Hometown and outlet stores for a potential future buyout. So again, 
really setting the stage for a potential deal down the line. The offer was apparently for around 225 per share or around a 23% rise above the share price in the past five market days leading up to the offer. So pretty good price, but still management there at Sears Hometown and Outlet Stores felt like they could maybe extract a little bit more. Thus, they turned down the offer. And while there are reasons for keeping the company separate, most notably the franchise model used by Sears Hometown, it does make some sense to reunite, if you will, the brands as Sears comes out of bankruptcy. In all honesty, the Hometown Stores took a bit of a PR hit, which I had alluded to just a second ago, took a really big hit on the chin during the last bankruptcy ordeal, causing them to post even street signs, really indicating that they are still open and that, and I quote, we're not going bankrupt. So if those store managers there are having to post those signs, you know that they were noticing a very pronounced traffic decrease to their stores. However, the hometown and outlet stores both use Sears Holdings or now Transform Hold Co. for distribution and licensing. So it really makes it an obvious fit going forward if the two companies do come together. Transform Hold Co., which is basically Eddie Lampert, might want to make the move because it's clear that Sears is attempting to rebrand surrounding appliances and so forth, rebrand around the brands they didn't entirely sell off. And additionally, when you look at some of the services offered by the new Sears home and life stores like Buy Online Pickup and Store and those in-store ordering kiosks, it would be hard-pressed to roll those out to hometown stores without some type of vertical integration, which is kind of what Sears, or again, Transform Holdco, wants to bring back to the table here. Now, before their latest quarter, in which same-store sales plummeted 8.6% for Sears hometown and outlet stores, and again, a lot of that blamed on distribution problems, a lot of that blamed on the fact that a lot of their credit resources had gone away with the Sears bankruptcy, their financial profile for the company, it actually hasn't been all that bad. Better, certainly, than Sears was before their bankruptcy. In the third quarter for Sears hometown and outlet stores, same-store sales were down just slightly, 0.2%. That's a number that Sears and Kmart would have killed for over the last three years, and their net loss was down to just $4.5 million compared to $10.9 million in the prior year's quarter. Their EBITDA had also been improving in recent quarters, only hampered by, again, the fourth quarter issues with Sears Holdings bankruptcy. But overall, you could certainly make a pretty strong, in fact, case that bringing the hometown stores back into the portfolio strengthens Transform Hold Co. going forward, although skeptics could argue that the hometown and outlet stores offer just another avenue for Eddie Lampert to exploit going forward. So I guess it's really about how you look at this. We know a lot of people and we hear from a lot of people that listen to the show that are very, very skeptical of what Eddie Lampert's ambitions are surrounding Sears and surrounding Transform Hold Co. So if you look at it through a bit of a negative lens, could be that Eddie Lampert just wants to drain resources from the hometown and outlet stores. If you're looking at it from a more positive lens, you could see that, hey, the hometown and outlet stores have actually been performing pretty decently over the last several years and using some of that strength, using some of that brand awareness on the local level might be able to help out Sears' brand overall countrywide. Now, shares of Sears hometown and outlet stores popped directly after the Monday announcement. They went from $1.95 per share at close last Friday to two seventeen at close Monday and Tuesday. 
they saw shares go even past the original offering price from Eddie Lampert and company, up to $2.36 at close. So obviously the market thinks that a deal will get done at some point in time. It may just be a matter of time. But I'm kind of excited, honestly, to see how Sears is going to leverage this new smaller store footprint. And more importantly, I think both Leighton and I, we kind of talked about this a few months ago, excited to see if they could potentially leverage this as well for their Kmart locations. That would be exciting to see a smaller square foot Kmart because there are now a number of markets within the country that are kind of bereft of you know, a twenty to 30,000 square foot retailer that's maybe a step above a Dollar General, but a step below a Target or a Walmart in terms of size and in terms of selection. We move on to our last main story of the podcast. If everyone is still at least awake and listening, we have a, a report, a bit of a surprise from a retailer that we became fans of over the past year or year and a half as Reuters reported this week that retailer at home may be considering a sale. It's interesting because the Reuters article references the, and I quote, poor performance of the stock, end quote, as a reason rather than the performance of the company itself. Shares were certainly around a 52-week low, around $19 a share or so. When the news broke, at home's 52-week high, for the record, is $40.97 per share. At Tuesday's end, shares were hovering right around $21, still reflective of a price-to-earnings ratio of 28. The unnamed source told Reuters that at home is working with Bank of America to find a potential buyer for the company. It's important to remember that At Home was initially made public just a few years ago, back in 2016. A lot of people were actually questioning the move because they were wondering about their overall ability to succeed, especially taking over very large footprints, former Target locations, former Kmart locations throughout the country, especially in the the south part of the United States. Previously, it was owned by two private equity firms, AEA Investors LP and Star Investment Holdings LLC. Both still own substantial stakes in the company, by the way, with AEA holding around 16.6% of the company and Star holding just under 10% of the company. Whenever you see private equity groups formed, you really have to wonder if the proposal to sell off at home may be motivated by the group's interest in cashing in the remaining stakes in the company. After all, the IPO was just around $15.30 per share. You figure if they get a little bit of a premium over the current share price, it would represent a pretty decent return, not to mention perhaps some of the money they've been getting in terms of management fees, just like those previous Toys R Us owners that we have been talking about. At Home currently has a $1.3 billion market cap, which actually is not that bad. It's a pretty large company if you consider the IPO just happening in 2016 and the fact that some competitors, some legacy competitors, have a market cap far less than that. If you look at the less than $1 billion market cap that JCPenney has now, for instance, The Reuters article claims that At Home is in the midst of a necessary reinvention because of pressures from e-commerce and other brick-and-mortar players in this space. However, we still see a growing company that is having some success in their niche. It isn't as though this is a legacy retailer caught unaware by new competition. To wit, their fourth quarter net sales increased 21% and comp sales increased 2.1%, just ahead of inflation there which is not horrible. For the fiscal 2019 time period, their comp saw a 2.7% rise and net sales rose 23%. Earnings per share was also up for the year, 38% to around 
30 cents per adjusted share. And we should be mindful that Reuters does have a habit of claiming that businesses are struggling, retail businesses are struggling because of e-commerce competition, as they often mention a similar line in pretty much any of the retail stories that are negative that we cover here on the podcast. Reuters also noted that at home's first quarter was off to a softer start per their earnings call. This was noted by the company as an impact to the Easter shift, something we've heard a lot of retailers discussing depending on when their fiscal quarter ends or starts. Now, the reason this caught us by surprise is that at home doesn't have the makeup of a retailer that would usually be a buyout target. When you look at some of the retailers recently in particular that have been bought out, you have either struggling retailers or mature retailers that might be a little undervalued by the market and someone sees a growth potential in them or turnaround potential in them. In the latter case, you think about Family Dollar and being picked up by Dollar Tree. Both of them have been actually in the news over the past few days as well. But usually growth-centric retailers have an inflated enough price-to-earnings ratio to make them unpalatable for larger companies. We've talked about Duluth Trading Company and how their price-to-earnings ratio is back down under 30, but you have retailers like Five Below where their price-to-earnings ratio has been over 40. Ollie's Bargain Outlet in the same boat. And here you have a retailer whose price-to-earnings ratio is a little bit down, and that's probably one of the reasons why they might be looking for that sell-off option. Although, again, you know the largest shareholders are private equity firms. They might be looking for that return on investment. And although we didn't cover the at-home latest earnings call on the show, we did look it over, and we thought really nothing of it. We thought it was a pretty solid quarter for the chain, and some numbers a little bit off from expectation, but some numbers looked pretty good at the same time. And growth and reinvestment was certainly the theme. They talked quite a bit about their second distribution center, their opening to keep up with their constant effort to expand their brick and mortar locations. Additionally, management discussed how new store locations were performing at a high rate. Now, this is a chain that we're talking about that added 31 stores during the last fiscal year, and they have only 188 stores overall. So you look at adding 31 stores, that's a significant amount. That's nearly 20% more stores in a single year for this company. And you just don't see companies like that talk about selling off all that often. And in fact, you see a little bit of a further runway to growth for at home. Of course, they have their own internal growth plans. But one of the things we talked about with regularity on the podcast is the availability of real estate in the United States. And there's a lot of smaller pieces of real estate that aren't really available right now in the U.S., but what is available, some larger big box stores. We talk about Kmart closures. We talk about Target moving some locations and going into smaller areas. All of this means more readily available real estate for the at-home business model. And again, they have several stores that are 80 to 100,000 square feet. You compare that to a retailer like Home Goods owned by TJX, and usually those locations are going to be floating more around 15 to 25,000 square feet on the whole. But at home, much larger locations out there. And so you look at all of the bankruptcies, all of the closures over the last couple of years, 
look at Toys R Us, of course, being one such retailer. Now, Toys R Us locations sometimes tend to be a little bit smaller than what at home might be looking for. But again, kind of a glut of that real estate that's out there. And one other thing that I'll mention, too, is that you've seen some Sam's Clubs close as well. And those are many cases about the same size and footprint as these at home stores. So my point is to say this, that at home, their runway for growth hasn't concluded yet. And even though this is a chain that, again, doesn't really have an e-commerce presence to speak of, they've done a good job in their particular category. They've been able to build out. They've had success with stores that have been open for a longer length of time, and they've been able to keep everything fresh within the stores. They've been able, moreover, to keep this kind of treasure hunt mentality within their stores without having price points quite as low as the TJX set of stores or even Ross or Burlington does when it comes to home goods. So for that reason, it's kind of interesting to see this sale come up again at home. We're still relatively bullish on them just as a retailer to say nothing of their stock or anything along those lines. So very, very interesting to see a retailer like that potentially be on the block. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We've reached the last segment of the Retail Focus Podcast, a segment we call Looking Ahead, where each late and I take a look ahead at a story we're keeping an eye on for the next week, month, or year. And we begin with Leighton. So typically, we don't talk about activist investors too much on the podcast because usually with that kind of talk, you take sides. And uh, a lot of times, usually an activist investor is maybe really aggressive and is looking to just extract short-term value out of a company. And oftentimes, we kind of get caught in the mix because we don't really want to take sides on the podcast, but we do want to relay the important news that's relevant to retail here in the United States, or at least in North America. But one story that we have sort of covered in the background, in terms of the background and earnings calls that we can't really negotiate around or or try to hide from our listeners, is the fact that Starboard had been an activist investor in Dollar Tree, and they were trying to fight to maybe extract value in terms of selling Family Dollar, that banner off, which was actually recently acquired not not that long ago by Dollar Tree. And they were saying that the store comps just aren't up to par and that the stores are failing. The stores need to be either relocated or revamped to a degree that Dollar Tree cannot facilitate. And I think at the time we were thinking that it's actually a good thing that the two stores came together because there are still a lot of synergies that can be unlocked in terms of distribution and in terms of the overall buying power. Because if you think about Family Dollar and Dollar Tree, they both try to suppress price points. They need to remain competitive for their target demographic. In order to do that, and in order to remain sustainable for the long term, you still have to have pretty robust margins. So the coming together of the two banners seemed like a no-brainer at the time. However, Starboard, again, not really happy about this. But Over the recent weeks, it's been announced that Starboard is now relinquishing what it was going to do in terms of a proxy fight against Dollar Tree. A proxy fight basically means that they were trying to implement certain board members and they were trying to get a few new board members to their 12-person board by the end of the year. They are no longer going to be nominating the seven directors at Dollar Tree's next shareholder meeting. This is big news because this was something that 
seemed like it was never going to end. Even a few months ago when we covered their earnings call here on the podcast, we were seeing notable differences with how Family Dollar operates, them closing a certain amount of underperforming stores throughout the United States and still refreshing the same exact number of stores that they had previously announced. Still, though, there was this background pressure, this essence of not being able to manage effectively this coming together of these two banners after around four years as one true entity. And I think now we can see that meaningful progress has been made and Starboard has actually agreed to take a step back and let management do its thing. Around a 10% comparable store sales increase they're noticing at remodeled stores. So those refreshed family dollar stores, not the relocated stores, those stores that have been there for a while, customers know about them. Those stores are actually doing quite well now. They're acknowledging that the product mix and the refreshed lighting, the refreshed openness of the aisles has really intrigued the customers. Customers are coming in more often and they're spending more per transaction. This is only good news in my opinion because it would be a poor thing for the store chain to divest Family Dollar after it spent all of that money acquiring those stores. And again, they're starting to really integrate the entire distribution chain. It would be a disaster to try to split that apart again. But I think this is interesting because it really shows you that companies can prevail in terms of having a constructive dialogue with activist investors and not just succumbing to those negative pressures from the outside world. Well, my looking ahead story actually has to do with another retailer we talked about recently, oh, about three months ago here on the podcast. I'm looking at Mills Fleet Farm. Fleet Farm announced just this past week that they are planning to come to actually Waukee, Iowa, which is an outlying suburb of Des Moines with a new 188,000 square foot retail building. Now, the reason I'm looking ahead at this story is I want to see what facets this particular store includes because we've talked about Fleet Farm as a retailer that basically has it all. But even recently, they've been increasing their square footage at their new stores. They've been increasing food offerings and fresh offerings at their new stores. This something they're planning for Waukee or are they going to go maybe back to the traditional Fleet Farm model within the stores? Either way, this kind of fits their overall model of the second ring cities, so to speak, around a main city. They don't want to open up stores within a larger city or even within outlying suburbs, but they're looking at kind of the second suburb over. And Waukee is exactly that, where you've got Urbandale and West Des Moines kind of separating this city from Des Moines. And, and Waukee is still a growing city, a population under 10,000. So it's an interesting development for a number of reasons, but more than anything, I'm really looking at what's going to be in this fleet farm as they continue to march west and south from their bread and butter in Wisconsin and Minnesota. So an interesting retailer to keep an eye on because they have been expanding a lot in recent years. And really the question is, if you live in the Midwest, are they coming to a city near you? Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. Again, for Layton, I'm Trent. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Retail Podcast. And we'll be back with you approximately one week from now. the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.